2: We're talking with a
3: special guest on Roto Viz Radio.
1: What's up, Roto
3: Hi everyone, welcome on into Rotoviz Radio, brought to you by the FFPC. I'm Dave Cabin, Senior Fantasy Analyst at Rotoviz. Matt is on vacation this week, so we have a special guest with us. I'm really excited to bring him on because he has just been doing absolutely tremendous work for us at Rotoviz, and that is Best Ball Guru, Mr. Mike Beers, uh, who, as I mentioned, is the developer of a number of the absolutely fantastic tools that we have on the site. In particular, our best ball suite, and he is arguably one of the top best ball players in the world. I would say, thanks for coming on, Mike. How, how are things going?
4: Uh, things are going great. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to be on the show. Um, you know, we're doing some some very cool stuff at uh, Rotaviz with the tools and best ball and and beyond best ball. So, it's a uh, it's a fun time to be on the team.
3: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And we've been going back and forth on some things. We have some exciting things on the way that I'm really pumped about. So, very glad to have you on board. And I'm really glad to have you on the podcast now because we get to pick your brain on a number of just really interesting developments that have happened as of late. The most interesting, of course, which is the situation with Tyreek Hill. As you know by now, he is not going to be suspended. The league just came out with this ruling. There's a whole slew of conversations that go with that. We will just stick with... How does this impact fantasy football leagues in 2019? So I'm going to toss it to you to start off. How does this impact the rest of the team? And where in your rankings does Hill fall now? Is he still a top five wide receiver, top 10, top 15? I have my opinion, but let's get yours first. Sure.
4: Um, I think he is absolutely top 10 and um, he, he might be sort of on the border of top five. Uh, you know, he, he was the wide receiver three last year and um you know kind of a starting point for me um i've been i've been doing more as I, i'm actually working on our our projection tool uh, for Rotoviz yep. of doing the the bottom up um projections but when i think from a top down level you know looking at the fact that um he was he was wide receiver 3 last year he had a great year i need to ask myself why is he not going to be in that sort of stratosphere this year um and you know, there are a couple of reasons i mean he scored uh 12 touchdowns which is a lot um and that could regress a little bit but and you know the offense as a whole could regress a little bit i mean regress is kind of a, a regression is is definitely a buzzword but i don't see a reason why Kansas City's offense should be worse. Um, you know, they were, they were so good that, you know, you have to think, okay, maybe they won't be so good again, but he's such a talented guy. I mean, you know, just, just focusing on what he does on the field, he makes the quarterback better. He makes the other receivers on the field better. Um, he opens things up and there's no reason that Mahomes, who obviously is very talented, is not going to target him like he did last year. Um, you know, so the only question is, you know, if like you could maybe say uh you know, the all this off field distraction maybe has gotten in his head, maybe he hasn't worked as hard this offseason, you know, but that's I mean you're building a narrative. You're you're trying to come up with reasons why he shouldn't be good. Um and I don't think he's locked to be, you know, top three again, but uh you know, saying he's definitely not gonna be in the top five is, is a stretch for me. I mean, he, he's immensely talented. The offense around him is great. Um, I think he, you have to, you have to have him up there.
3: Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Patrick Mahomes, isn't going to throw for 50 touchdowns this season, you know, in, in the broad range of outcomes, But even in my projections for the Chiefs, if I drop Mahomes down to 30 passing touchdowns and I bring Hill down to one rushing touchdown, eight receiving touchdowns, I can still get him very easily into that 290-point range, which is where a top 10 wide receiver is going to go. Um, As you mentioned, with the way that his game works, and as I mentioned before on the podcast, we know that. To a very large extent, depth of target, air yards, those belong to the receiver. A lot of those things that have made Hill good in the past and that have made him and Mahomes function well together in the past aren't going to go away, even if this offense does take a step back. And Hill now has proven for a number of seasons that he's one of these outliers, in efficiency. Sure. He's been very efficient. Maybe this year we don't see it quite as efficient, but he still has carried enough from year to year with a little bit of boost from his rushing production that it's hard to really see much changing. So I almost feel like you approach 2019 now just as if this had never happened with Tyreek Hill. Now, the biggest negative from a fantasy perspective for another player, I think, is probably other than McCole Hardman, who now figures to not have a very substantial role is probably Travis Kelsey, but I still think this doesn't change the fact that he's probably very much in that conversation for tight end one. I don't know if I'm comfortable moving Kittle or Ertz ahead yet. Do you kind of view the same impact or am I understating it uh, from your point of view?
4: No, I think he's still uh, sort of unquestionably to me, the uh, the tight end one. Um, you know, the, there's sort of counterbalancing factors with Kelsey. I mean, I think when there was question as to whether... A uh, hill would be there at all, or uh, you know whether he was going to miss games. Then uh, you know you could have sort of assume a larger target share for Kelsey, and that made him easily the tight end one, right? Now we've got Hill back, and you could say, okay, maybe he's not going to have as big a um, you know a share, but I what I mentioned was, I mean, it's a lot like Deshaun Jackson in this way. Tyreek Hill opens things up for everybody. I mean, Kelsey's efficiency is going to be higher uh, with with Hill around, and Hill was there all last year. Kelsey was um, tight end one, you know, and it, and by a pretty material margin, actually. Uh, so I don't really have any reason to think that uh, that he's not going to do that again, or that he's not the best bet to do that again is probably the best way to put it. And um, you know, there there are other guys who. You know, certainly could have a better year than him, but if you're if you're looking at the odds-on favorite, you got to stick with Kelsey.
3: Yeah, and the other thing too is, if you're thinking out there as a listener that Kelsey's share of the passing attempts are going to decrease dramatically because Hill is back, I would say that that's probably not the case because in Hill's in this void of Tyreek Hill being out, those targets probably would have been spread. A number of directions it's not like they would have all gone right. to kelsey so in my projections for them i actually only dropped him down about two and a half overall percentage points which still puts him around 144 targets which is more than needed for him to be the tight end one
4: yeah absolutely
3: yeah so mike you play so much best ball You build these awesome apps. You're looking at ADP all the time. Are there any players that are going now in rounds that just don't make any sense to you and you just still can't wrap your head around why those players are going where they are?
4: Yeah. um, You know, the one guy I picked out... uh, who I'm finding myself drafting him almost every league is Kyle Rudolph. Um, You know, it's, it's not an exciting name to talk about really. Um, (laughs) And I understand why his ADP was depressed like early in the off season. Uh, You know, the Irv Smith coming in, um, you know, he hadn't signed a contract yet. People were worried. Okay. Maybe they're moving on. But at this point he has, he, he has the contract extension Um, he finished the last three years, uh, depending on your scoring, but it's in the range of tight end seven, tight end eight. And then three years ago, he was tight end two, um, or, uh, so this, and his ADP is tight end 13. I just don't get it. Um, there's not some huge change in the scheme that he's playing in. If anything, last year was, uh, I mean, I think what it is, people were kind of disappointed last year. They thought. That he was going to be even better than he was. He was still, you know, the seventh or eighth highest scoring tight end. Um, and, but, but people wanted more. He had some pretty abysmal games. And I think that just rubbed people the wrong way. But I mean, the fact that this guy is available in, you know, the 13th round of a draft of a best ball draft um, is it, just kind of silly to me. So, I love getting him as a second tight end, which is easy to do given how cheap he is uh, because he, like uh, he legitimately could be your tight end one on, um, on most best ball teams.
3: That's really interesting. That's a name that I actually hadn't uh, picked out when looking through things, but to put it in perspective, like you said last year, 155 fantasy points uh, in the scoring that I'm looking at. So if you take this to a redraft perspective, you're completely fine waiting on tight end and grabbing a guy like Rudolph late. So I think that's a that's a really awesome name to point out. Um, and then in my projections for this year, I still have him slating in around what he did last year. And it's possible with another year with Cousins, perhaps he takes a step forward with some of the offensive changes. So that's definitely a name to not forget about. Um, kind of taking us down a different avenue. Uh for me I know when I've built tools for the site in the past I've I've always had a couple of like key takeaways of things actually related to fantasy football that I wasn't expecting to discover as I worked on them. So you spent a bunch of time building the best ball suite. Did you have any major takeaways or lessons that you picked up from building it that you think can be applied to best ball drafts? Maybe things that stood out to you before you started that you know you hadn't really like wrapped
4: your head around prior? Yeah, one thing that um that really you know, as I've worked more and more on these tools has, has become more important to me and more apparent is just the power of, uh, you know, the visualization of data, right. Um, You know, I, it's, you can look at ADP, you can look at a table of numbers, but something I just added, I didn't even have it for the uh, the best ball command center tools that um, I put out last year. I've added it for Rotovis this year, is this, um, this ADP grid uh, for the best ball tools, which just, um, what it does is it takes that ADP table, um, just the players in order, but fits them into the 12 team snake draft. And it makes it so easy to see where the runs are happening, where the pockets of value are. And, and it, and it's so much more intuitive than looking at a table, right? I mean, you can see that quarterbacks don't start flying off the board in an FFPC draft until about the seventh round, right? And then, uh, you know, um, if you're looking at, uh, you know, when do I need to start thinking about kickers? It's so obvious to you, just looking at, like, you know, I, I, it's called color-coded in this grid. You know, all the purple shows up in the 15th round, right? Um, 15th, 18th round. And it helps you plan your draft, right? I mean, you, you know, a- every pick you're making, you, you need to think about what you've already got Obviously, the quality of the player is available. You want to pick the best player that you can. And then what's going to be there for you in the next few rounds. And having this visual tool um, without having to sort of process the numbers yourself each time on the fly, um, it, I found it extremely helpful. And I think it's been a huge addition to just um, sort of the analysis and preparation process for me.
3: That is an awesome point. Um, I know from having worked on some draft tools too, that finding ways to provide a very concise summary or something that you can look at that takes away an element of needing to sift through a lot of information at once is one way to really streamline your draft for you. I think it's also interesting how you mentioned about having a plan. Because I think one thing we hear a lot is about, or we hear a lot of people mention about is Well, you know, everything is so iterative that you don't want to go in with a steadfast plan. But I think that what you're probably getting more of if you use tools like the one that you've created and you place them into this context is having a variety of different plans or different approaches that you can easily pivot on that fall within your strategy. But you have the data lined up in a way so that you can react and then take your Different avenues down your path, if that makes sense. No, that's
4: exactly right. I mean, I think um, I think of it as like a toolkit, right? And you know, you go in, you don't go into a draft with one plan. You go in with you know a dozen plans, right? And as yep. the draft plays out, as you pick the players that you think are the best, that you 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 collect value for the first few rounds, you you knock off. Uh, a few of those plans each round, you know, uh, okay, these ones aren't in play anymore, right? And, um, but you still have a plan uh, or or three uh, by the eighth round that, um, you know, knowing who's going to come off the board in the next couple of rounds, um, what you've already got, uh, you can adjust and um, having, you know, being able to sort of forecast what's going to happen a couple of rounds ahead is, is a huge advantage in your drafts.
3: Absolutely. Um, So when you first started working on these best ball tools that you have, what were key things that you were looking to create back then? And what are aspects that now you find yourself spending the most time reviewing when you're actually drafting? And I guess it's quite possible it might just be those visualizations that you just mentioned.
4: Well, it's related to the visuals. I mean, the thing that I found most helpful and the thing I really like to look at myself is is trends, Um, trends within Mm
1: -hmm.
4: an individual draft sort of season meaning uh i mean these things start uh, on some sites they start as early as january typically you know so we're looking sort of march all the way through august and there are trends that happen over that time period or types of players that are repeated year after year um and that's and so something i i've used the tools for this and i've used the tools to illustrate this um that's something i really try to take advantage uh you know one like a couple of examples are um you know rookie running backs uh, i have noticed that they tend to just they, they're cheaper before the draft and they're more expensive after the draft almost across the board um uh, you know without thinking about who's going to go where um another one is uh you know, elite quarterbacks tend to be cheaper earlier in the offseason than they are later in the offseason and um those are things you can take advantage of and you can and you can present them very clearly i can make a very convincing argument just with a couple of charts that these, these are real things that happen, and they're things you can probably take advantage of. That
3: makes complete sense. And the thing that I've always wished that you could do in Redraft or that I try to do is by having a high volume of teams take advantage of exactly some of these things. But of course, in something like Redraft, where you have the in-season management, you can only do it so many right. times. But when you move back and you start tracking your exposures in some of these tools and doing different things like that, you can really, um, exploit a lot of these trends. Cause like you said, we do see them year over year and, um, I don't see the type of things going like that, or I don't see any, you know, some of these trends going away. They're just kind of part of like the human nature, especially for people that don't sit down and spend as much time as we do working through these things. So that brings me to if people do want to start getting into best ball, taking advantage of these tools that we have up, these awesome um, insights that you've put together for everybody, what is the biggest mistake that a beginner might make?
4: I think um, I think it, it probably has to do with balance on your roster. Um, you know, and and by that I mean just keeping track of you don't have to go into a draft thinking I'm going to do a zero running back draft or I'm going to do, um, you know, running back heavy or whatever. But the idea that the, the most successful path I've found has some kind of balance. Um, you know, we, uh, a, a lot of, um, what uh, Sean has been talking about with the best ball workshop this year with the, um, the single elite running back and then, um, you know, sort of going waiting on running back after that. I mean, the, that that's a balanced approach, actually. I mean, you, you've invested a large amount of draft capital in the one running back and then you wind up balanced because you're waiting and sort of leveling that out um, by not spending as much on your remaining running backs and just sort of keeping track of that. You know, if you have, if you take an elite quarterback, say, um, you know, generally that's not something I advise, but say, uh, you know, Mahomes happens to fall to the fifth or sixth round for, in whatever draft and you think that's a great value. Okay. You, you know, you, but you spent a good amount on your quarterback. Don't take another quarterback in the seventh or eighth round, you know, um, and don't take three quarterbacks. You all have a limited amount of draft capital, and you need to allocate that in an intelligent way across your positions. Um, so that that's one thing that I think it takes practice, um, but I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're doing best ball drafts, especially um, when you're doing a lot of best ball drafts.
3: For sure. And I don't play... An extreme amount of best ball, to be honest. But I think that those principles are ones that when you spend a lot of time playing redraft kind of carry through. And it goes back to the idea that I talk about a lot on this podcast of really thinking through how you're building out your roster, making sure that you're looking at it holistically, realizing that There's intrinsic qualities with each position that you need to think about how many players you need to play at each position and how that is going to impact your roster and when those players are all available. So yeah, really the key takeaway there is remembering that each player is falling within the confines of one position and then within the context of your team versus just going after particular players or taking each pick as just that player and not how that player fits into the context of your team. Very quickly, I want to remind everybody about the 10% off discount you can get through the RotoViz podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcasts. With the season approaching extremely quickly at this point, you definitely want to take advantage of all the awesome articles we have coming out, the tools that we already have, and some really cool ones that are on the way. And this year, if you want to support the RotoViz radio channel and the plethora of podcasts that we have coming out every single week head to patreon look up Rotoviz radio and you can not only support the show but also get into our special slack channel where you will actually get to interact with a bunch of the team and even some of the writers on the site get uh, or excuse me get to have all of your questions answered from the team uh so definitely check that out all right mike how are you approaching the Bears backfield? This one seems to be a bit of a conundrum for many folks out there.
4: Yeah, um so I actually think there's uh, even though both David Montgomery and um, Tariq Cohen are you know in the earlier rounds sort of uh, like if you're looking at FFPC, they're in the fifth round, you know they're sort of fifth to sixth um, across sites. I think they're they're both um pretty reasonable values. Particularly I mean in a PPR league, um Cohen more so, but Montgomery has the potential to be in there on third downs. I mean, he has the potential to be a bell cow. I'm not and and that that would obviously marginalize Cohen a little bit, but mm-hmm. Given that he has that potential, I mean, a fifth-round price tag I don't think is very steep for him. So I, I'll draft either of those guys. I won't put them on the same team, probably. I mean, it's difficult, to given their ADPs are very close together. But the guy I really like is Mike Davis. Um, and I, I have sort of a, an analogy from last year that, that explains why I like him so much, in that last year I faded James White um, on the Patriots. And my logic was... There are two guys ahead of him that uh, you know that, that are probably going to get the ball before me at the time. You know, I was thinking Sony Michelle and Rex Burkhead, and, um, and I was thinking hey, that's just too much for me to to need to go right uh, in order for this guy to return value. And but what I wasn't thinking about was what that really the situation really was um, was if one of those guys underperforms or gets hurt, then White suddenly becomes a value. Um he he only needs, you know, he has two separate avenues toward value. And I think um you know, it's a little bit less so Cohen, but still even Cohen. Um if either David Montgomery struggles, he's a rookie, or he gets injured, he's a running back, they get injured, or Cohen does, um I'm you know, I think Davis can get on the field and he and I think they have a creative offense in Chicago. I it's one of those guys that I'm putting on a zero RB roster. You know, I, I'm not – he's not a target that I'm trying to put on every redraft team. Um, but in, you know, in best ball, in a, in a league where – or in a draft where, um, you know, I'm focusing on those later running backs, he's a guy I like to add. I think he has uh, – he showed us in Seattle that he can – he can carry a load if he if he's asked to. Um you know, he's not he's not a special player but he can do it. Um so that's uh he's the one i have the most exposure to, but i i don't dislike any of them honestly at their prices.
3: That's fair. And Davis to me i think one of the elements that i do like about him is i can see him early on in the season getting some usage. So not only do you have the chance of if Unfortunate circumstances arrive for Cohen or Montgomery and him seeing value all season. Right out of the gate, if I have a team where I don't have strong running backs because I'm going with an approach where I'm loading up on the elite wide receivers early, maybe he's a guy that I can use in week two, week three, week four, and then see how things develop. So, yeah, that's certainly a a fair answer. And I can see arguments for any of the players in that backfield. Uh, Moving on to wide receivers, pick one of these three. Wideouts, Kenny Galladay, Robert Woods, or Chris Godwin on FFPC. All of them are positioned with uh, ADP falling between 46 to 53.
4: Yeah, so I think my pick here is Woods for the safety. Um, he last year, I think he was um, just looking at weeks one through 16 in PPR, he was wide receiver nine. I know that there was the injury to Cup, but um, I think he doesn't need a lot to go exactly right to or or perfectly to hit his adp um you know he is uh you know wide receiver 19 so that that's 10 spots lower than he finished last year i think he's attached to a good offense with um you know, Godwin needs to take a step forward. The potential is clearly there. He's a talented guy. I don't like, you know, I have nothing against him. Uh, Galladay, the, the Lions, I just don't trust the Lions, right? I mean, Galladay, the The advantage for him is he's he's the alpha on the, on the wide receiver group there. Um, you know, the, he's a talented player. He, But maybe they're going to run the ball, you know, way more than they should. Uh, I just, I don't really trust uh, the coaching regime in Detroit. I don't trust... Um, you know, based on last year, the 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 way they're going to play things, I I think Woods has the right combination of talent and opportunity, and you know, support quality of quarterback coaching um, talent around him to just be the safest pick there. You know, I I don't expect any of them to finish as a top five wide receiver, and if I had to pick one who like could, it would probably it would mm-hmm. be Galladay. But I don't expect it to happen. Um, and right. really, I love having Woods on my best ball team because it's just that that floor that the, like I've got that solid guy there, and you know I can sprinkle around him some high upside plays. Um, I don't feel that way with Galladay or Godwin.
3: That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, in what I have projected for the Rams, which obviously you know, isn't is what's going to happen. I can very realistically see all three of the receivers in LA outscoring Galladay. And a lot of that goes back to the way that the team is likely to operate, how successful it's going to be. And you contrast that with what we see in Detroit, where that's still very much a team in transition. Second year under Matt Patricia, we'll see how the adjustments that they're hopefully making this offseason come into play next year. Uh, but the other thing, too, for Woods in not needing a perfect scenario, uh, it's possible, too. It takes Cooper Cup a little bit of time to get going this season, um, which may even increase his value early right. on. But when you look at him over the course of the season, just given the the, the situation that he's in, it's hard to see him really phasing out. Um, I think that, you know, you could also, if you wanted, like you said, make the case for Galladay being, perhaps the focal point of his offense, but I do feel better about Woods and I actually in an interesting twist might feel better about Godwin just because I think that I can see him maybe having like a quote unquote breakout season, and a larger range of outcomes, of course with them being kind of squashed into that ADP range um, that might not be the best way of looking at it, but you touched upon rookie running backs earlier and how in best ball, we can exploit that um, the proclivity of, ADP for running backs to rise up after the draft um, by going um, for running backs earlier on um, in the best ball season. Is there a rookie running back this year that you're still really interested in?
4: Uh, There aren't any that I'm really, you know, really chasing um, I think I like the potential for um, you know a very popular name since uh, you know the news about Gurley's the arthritis has come out is Daryl Henderson, but he's you know he's been priced up um, and there's a chance that he's not going to be all that useful and, and maybe I don't want to spend a six round pick on him. I've certainly drafted him um, a fair amount, uh, particularly in uh, I've been playing some of the uh, the draft uh, tournament. Um, sort of format. I think he, you know, he has the upside that he's worth a pick there. But um, you know, I think he's he's the most expensive one. But Jacobs is your safest bet uh, among among the rookies easily, and he's not that expensive. You know, and he's not going to be um, Saquon Barkley, but he's not priced like Saquon Barkley was, right? You had to use a first round pick to get him. And he falls all the way to the uh, the fourth round sometimes, particularly with this holdout news. Um, but you know, assuming he plays, and I think it's pretty safe to assume he plays. I don't think they're gonna, yep. um, you know, maybe he misses some training camp time, which is a factor. But assuming he's the locked in RB one on uh on Oakland, and he actually shows up for Week one, that's that's a pretty good value, I think. Um, it, unless you think he's just a terrible player, and um, I I don't think that um. Yeah, i i i actually kind of don't have an opinion on him but um another guy if we're looking later um i like darwin thompson uh just because of the potential um uh, and the price the it's the it's the right mix right there uh it, it, anytime there's a chance you could be carrying the ball or, or you know receiving back for An Andy Reid offense, I think you want that guy, uh, especially if he's dirt cheap, Um, though he's getting, I think, a little more popular. Um, But he's another one I've I've certainly got my eye on.
3: In a 2019 redraft league, how interested in building a team with two of the big three tight ends are you? (sighs) Not very. Um,
4: Particularly, I think they're just too expensive, honestly. I mean, you you, yeah. you got to use, I mean, if you're going to have two of them, you're using, best case scenario, a second and third round pick to get both Kittle and Ertz. Um, or you're using a first and second round pick probably to get um, Kelsey and one of those two. And that's just too much for me. I mean, it. I think it reduces your flexibility a little bit. I mean, one of those guys has to play flex. You still, um, in most leagues, you need three wide receivers. Um, you just there are too many good players uh, available in those rounds, and it's hard to make up that value. Whether we're talking about um, you know one of the second round running backs or one of the first round right, wide receivers, who would just have these great floors. I don't think the payoff is enough. You know, it you get one of those guys, you've won the tight end position versus you know nine out of your eleven mm-hmm. opponents, and that's enough for me, right? I don't need the second guy. I don't think they're so good <laughs> that they're going to outscore all the players of the other positions who are available in those rounds.
3: I could not have said that better. I think that you summed up that or you summed that up perfectly. Uh, another question: With I'm going to give you three wide receivers. You tell me which one that you you find the most attractive: uh, D. D. Westbrook, James Washington, or Marquez Valdez Scantling. Uh,
4: so it's not James Washington. Um, I can say that. Uh, I think he has too much competition. I think he's been in terms of his price. He's being given. He's being assumed as the wide receiver two in um, in Pittsburgh and. I think maybe he will be, but that's not a safe assumption. Moncrief there, even uh, Deontay Johnson is is a talented guy. Uh, I don't expect him to just walk in as the wide receiver two ahead of those guys, but he's someone who's going to challenge him for playing time and targets. So it's not him. Um, And then the question is, is it Westbrook or is it Scantling? And it's it's kind of tough for me. I I think – You know, I think Scantling's ADP has moved ahead of um, Westbrook's, and it might be justified. Uh, If he's actually going to be the wide receiver two, if he's displaced Allison, which is, you know, the report from the Beats, and um, Rodgers talked him up a bit, I think that's a pretty valuable role. Um, I tend to lean toward the, the wide receiver one. Um, which would suggest Westbrook, I think, unless you really don't like Westbrook and think that, you know, Marquis Lee is going to come back and take his job or Keelan Cole. Um, So, you know, put a gun to my head. I think I take Scantling because I like the offense more. And, um, you know, we've heard some encouraging things, but uh, I'm not totally sold. And I really like getting Westbrook, you know, a round or two later because Scantling has gotten very popular.
3: Right. And perhaps I guess the answer here is if you're somebody that has multiple teams, you don't have to lock yourself onto just one of them. They're probably all in a similar range. Although like you, I think I prefer Washington the least as I actually am expecting Moncrief to catch on as the second option for uh, Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. I have never been a Ronald Jones fan. He had a disappointing rookie season. Uh, The team has put some things out recently in Tampa Bay that are not looking very positive for him. It looks like they might be more open to using Peyton Barber in the majority of running back situations. How do you feel about Jones? Is he a guy that you've put on a lot of teams so far?
4: So I have him on a few few teams that are, uh, you know, sort of the zero running back structure because I see some upside there. I mean, he was a... A uh, highly touted highly anticipated draft pick um and he you know so the, the, the quote unquote he's supposed to be talented but he was so <laughs> bad last year it really it makes me nervous um the thing I like, barber is a guy that um i drafted i drafted him a lot last year actually i was i, I was skeptical of, of um of Ronald Jones. And so I was right in being skeptical of him. And I went after Barber. And the thing was, Barber got two hundred thirty-four carries last year. He got a large amount of action. And he did nothing. I mean, it yep. it was bad. Uh he yeah, he got uh, he also got twenty-nine targets. He he had six total touchdowns. He only had three point seven yards per carry. He just didn't generate a lot of fantasy points, and the volume he got last year, I to me is his upside this year. Um, so he's the cheaper of the two, which is always nice. But this has me at this point, particularly with you know uh, some negative news regarding Jones, I'm kind of fading both. Um, so one of them probably has to be a value. Um, you know, when all the, you know, the cards are dealt at the end of the year, but I don't think it'll be a big value. And um, while I was targeting Ronald Jones kind of early, I've I've pumped the brakes on that. And um, I, I, I like the passing game in Tampa. I don't like the running game.
3: Completely agree on that front. I guess the, the one way that maybe you can approach these guys is they're the type of player that you're not going to be attached to. If you do draft them in a league with league management, so you, you can maybe take a swing with a later pick if their ADP doesn't creep up and hopefully can maybe even fall down a little bit, add them in, try to get a sense of what's going on in the first three weeks or so, and then just move on. Right. Rotovis fans, allow me a brief second to tell you about our good friends at the FFPC, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. While it may be the off-season for most people, it is definitely not for our listeners or the players over at the FFPC. If you're a diehard who's ready to draft now, FFPC best ball leagues are forming daily starting at just a $35 entry fee, and if you're a fan of the Dynasty format... Over the last few years, the FFPC has become the go-to destination for serious dynasty players. They have almost 300 active dynasty leagues, starting at $77, and they even have a $5,000 entry dynasty league. Not a single league has folded in nine years. Limited teams or limited orphan teams are available for purchase right now, and brand-new startup leagues will be opening shortly. Don't miss the FFPC experience. of his listeners go to myffpc.com and register now. That's myffpc.com, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football.
1: This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. Decoy by Duckhorn. Elevate your occasion. You shouldn't go to Barnes & Noble and buy 10,000 books just so you can build a book fortress and yell out, I am your book leader. You shouldn't buy 147 copies of War and Peace, stuff them inside turkeys, and serve them at Thanksgiving as terbookins. And you definitely shouldn't buy up all the copies of Dork Diaries, causing the neighborhood kids to stage a protest in your front yard. But you could, because at the Barnes & Noble book haul, you can get over a 1,000 titles for 50% off. Stock up at your local Barnes & Noble. Turbukins are fictitious and should not be cooked at home. You have touched upon this, so I think we might
3: know your answer already, but are you a big proponent of zero running back, and how viable of a strategy is it in best ball?
4: So I... I'm a believer in zero running back. I am more of a believer in it in a traditional redraft league than I am in best ball uh, because of the existence of the waiver wire, the ability to churn through running backs as they, um, you know, if they don't pan out, you know, you can cut bait. Uh, You don't have that option in best ball. I think it still can work in best ball, but I think – The best way to execute it is not actually zero running back. It's the one sort of anchor running back. Um, You know, a guy you got uh, ideally early in the first round or, you know, just first or second round running back and then waiting and loading up on those receivers or tight ends that um, can really dominate the position and dominate the flex. In best ball, I think it's really helpful to have – that anchor for one of your running back positions, um, especially given you can, you know, you could draft several running backs, even though you, you can't replace them only having to fill in that one starting spot, being able to count on uh, that, that anchor running back to fill the RB one spot, I think is very helpful. Um, and it's pretty difficult to, you know, maybe by the end of the year, if you use, uh, you know, seven, of your roster spots on running backs, uh, you know, from late in the draft, you're filling your two starters with good scores, but it's kind of tough to have that for the first six or seven weeks when you can't play the waiver wire. You can't, you know, you can't spend all of your free agent budget on the guy who emerges after week two. Uh, You have to have already drafted him, which is hard. Um, so I think, you know, uh, uh, again, I mentioned earlier uh, Sean has talked about the idea of getting that one elite running back early. Um, I actually uh, I, I built a, uh, a sort of a, an auto drafting um, program based on roster construction data and league data from the past nice. several years, a- and I put it in live drafts. I put it in real um, Fanball drafts, and it kept doing that. It kept doing the one running back in the first round and like five or six wide receivers and tight ends before going back to running back. And um, honestly, I'm expecting those, those rosters to do well. I think it's a really good strategy, but I do like to have that one anchor.
3: I can definitely see how that would make sense. And, And from a perspective of historical results, one of the things that we've talked about on the show this summer is the much better probability of a running back drafted in the first or second round of the draft to, achieve what you might expect or to have, you know, for lack of a better term, like a hit season. Those running backs do it with such a higher frequency that there's definitely something to be said about trying to get your main running back earlier on in a draft, especially in a league where you don't have the ability, like you said, to play the waiver wire and pull them in. So I'll be interested to follow up and see uh you know how those teams did when things actually play out, because that's an approach that I could definitely get behind. Shifting ourselves from best ball over to redraft leagues, do you play a lot of redraft, Mike? And when you find yourself in a a redraft league, what kind of mental recalibration do you have to do to wire yourself to the correct frame of mind for those types of drafts?
4: Um, yeah, I do. I, I, you know, I don't go overboard, but I, I usually have, uh, I don't, you know, about a half a dozen redraft leagues that I'm really focused on, uh, throughout the year. And it is tough. I mean, I, I spent so much time thinking about best ball, which is a totally different game. <laughs> um, you know, having the waiver wire kind of changes everything, honestly. And, um, one thing it does is it, it leads me to, particularly in an auction format, but even in, in a snake draft, I, I, we'll have more top heavy teams. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take more risks with the, uh, you know, middle and, uh, late part of the draft so, because I know that I can churn through players. Um, and then another thing is that, you know, quarterback is something you really got to pay attention to. I think, um, you know, you, you can, you can stream. So it's, um, It's a little different than, you know, in best ball, you're thinking, am I going to take two or three quarterbacks? In regular redraft league, I'm taking one quarterback. Um, And, you you know, you have to think more about um, it's nice to have an every week starter. Um, Similarly in tight end, I think I push tight ends up a little bit in, um, in redraft leagues as opposed to best ball because it's nice to just lock a guy in. Um, and not have to play the waiver wire. It's easier to play the waiver wire at quarterback for sure. It's not as easy at tight end. Um, so that's, that's one thing I need to think about. You know, I, I can fade tight end almost, you know, until the 12th round in a best ball league, uh, pick three guys and feel good about it. Um, if I do that in a redraft league, it's, it's going to be a, a pain. It's not going to go well. I'm going to agonize over <laughs> decisions every week you know guys on the waiver wire versus the guy I've got on my roster for a redraft league and uh so I'm I'm a little more I'm a little a little more quick to pull the trigger on a tight end I think
3: that makes perfect sense um yeah one of the annoying things I've always had too is if I try to in a redraft league say, all right, I'll just grab these two guys and then piece together a running back, or excuse me, a tight end or or a quarterback, and then you don't know which one to go back and forth with. So sometimes I'm almost uh, better off if I just go with one and then, you know, try to see how that works or either just really commit to streaming. One of my problems has been saying that I'm going to stream and then trying to just go with a low-end starter at one of the positions and not actually following through in streaming week to week. Um, But, you know... That That's definitely a consideration. Biggest lesson that you learned playing fantasy last year and that you want to make sure that you avoid this season or something that you didn't do and you want to make sure that you implement this season. So what was a major takeaway from last year?
4: Major takeaway from last year was... Uh, it, it hurts to say it uh, because it was really... I, I need to follow my own rules. Um, yep. Last year... So I I wrote an article, um, it was actually for Roto-Grinders two years ago, I was writing for them, about rookie running backs, uh, about how they're almost always cheaper before the draft. I mentioned this earlier, they're always more expensive after the draft, and that has to do with sort of de-risking. People um, just feel more comfortable with players. Even if they didn't land in the ideal spot, they landed somewhere. They know that they have a job. They get more expensive. And when you're thinking about a best ball portfolio, you want to have them when they're you want to draft them when they're cheaper, um, you know, more often in aggregate, and that keeps your average cost across your portfolio lower, and that's a good thing. Uh, so last year, um, I was all over Royce Freeman, I was all over Rashad Penny, <laughs> um, and they did just as expected. They got more expensive after the draft. They found homes. People were really excited about them. The thing was, I stopped drafting Royce Freeman, who jumped to, you know, fourth or fifth round after being dirt cheap. I didn't stop drafting Rashad Penny. Um, mm-hmm. And he w- he was expensive. He was like a third round pick. Um, and... I just kept going and and I had this very high exposure to this rookie running back who, you know, I, I'd done some research, but you know, I, I, I shouldn't have been that confident in him. Um, I had a strategy. It was draft him early and then fade him. And then I didn't fade him. So, you know, I should have stuck to my guns. I think, I think it's a really good strategy to draft rookies before the draft and then lay off. And, um, and And so, my lesson was just to stick with that, to trust what my chart showed me, what my you know my <laughs> my article was about., uh, I should have trusted, I should have stuck with it, and I shouldn't have gotten just too excited about a couple of guys,
3: yep, and some of that, right, probably was just buying into the hype that came from others, kind of letting yourself get sucked into what was coming out on him probably from people that you respect. And that definitely is something that can make sense to do, but it does speak to this idea of if you have certain rules that you've outlined for yourself, how important it is to follow them, but it is really hard to follow them. Right. I mean, it's, you have to be very disciplined. Yeah.
4: And it's really, it's the idea of a value trap. I think, Um, you know, you, you can go into, you know, if you're a volume drafter, value is very important you can find yourself taking the same guy over and over again because he's a quote unquote value, and then you end up overexposed to a guy who might have been, you know, a fourth or fifth round. Those are expensive picks, and uh, if he's a bust, then you're you're kind of tanked, and you really need to pay attention to that. That's something I really like about the, the tools on uh, that I have built for Roto. Is you know you can keep track of not only how much of your portfolio is is allocated to a guy, but what you've paid for him. You know, like a, a Um, over time, have you been overpaying? Did you get a good value? You know, it helps you figure out when it's time to just sort of pump the brakes and say, okay, if it works out, I'm going to collect the profits. I'm not going to push it.
3: That's a really cool thought because you do hear people talking a lot about how invested they are into a player, but you don't really hear them talk about the price that they're invested. So if you don't mind, let me pick your, your mind on that a little bit more. It seems like your base idea there is to keep track of how often you have a player, but try to get the average price or some type of metric like that of what he has cost you to determine if you should continue adding him or not, or if you have to wait till his price moves down, something along those lines.
4: Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so what what the tools do is they they compare what you've – you know, sort of paid on average, um, your your personal ADP versus what um, sort of the player's recent ADP is. And if you've gotten a lot of value on that player um, and you have a pretty high exposure to them, there's not really any reason to add more if they're more expensive right now. And that's something I'm careful about because you can have two sort of, you know, quote-unquote, portfolios of best ball teams. One person has, uh, you know, say both have 40% exposure to Royce Freeman last year. The one who got all or most of their exposure before the draft when he was a 10th to 12th, even later round pick, is going to have a better season. It's so it's really, it's an important thing to keep track of, uh, yeah. you know, so the one who was paying fifth round picks for him, it probably is not going to do well. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that's, that's definitely something, definitely something I keep track of. Um, it's why I like looking at those charts, sort of ADP over time, um, looking at where I pick players versus the market and, um, you know, it, it helps me just sort of calibrate that. You know, if a guy, if I still think as a guy, a guy is a value in August, but he's six rounds more more expensive than he was in May, and I was drafting a lot of him in May, it's you know, just you know, the idea is just you know, take the profits. Um, you know, don't press it because things can always go wrong, no matter how confident you are, no matter how good the value looked, and you've already invested you've got that low average cost you can you can move on to some other guys who you know maybe weren't quite as confident in but um, for your portfolio overall are going to be a better investment
3: that is probably one of the more important things Things that I've ever heard mentioned in best ball, and I'm not sure that I've actually heard somebody talk about that before. I'm sure that's something that most people have in the back of their mind but don't consider too much. And I think that's one of those reasons that if you have not checked out these tools yet and you're interested in doing so, I can't recommend going to RotoViz, signing up, and using these as you're going through your drafts enough. Because, like Mike said, once you start looking at these visualizations, you're able to just have such a better idea of what's going on. And, um, you know, I don't play as much best ball as a lot of people, but when I start using these tools, I just have a lot more fun with it too, which is one of like the, the key takeaways. I especially like too how, um, you know, I play a lot of FFPC. I can actually follow along with my best ball draft with one of the tools that Mike has. And I'm going to now make sure that I pay extra special attention to that component that we just talked about. So, Uh, Before we get you out of here, Mike, who is the one player that if you had to attach your name to the season, saying that you're all in on him at his ADP, you're truly behind him? Who is it?
4: All right, I I don't think this one's super controversial, but uh, I'm going to go with Matt Ryan at quarterback. Ooh, okay, Um, he's not cheap per se, um, but he uh, he consistently performs, and they they're playing. Their first 9 straight weeks are in domes in Atlanta. Um he's got a very talented wide receiver group. He's got um Hooper is a talented guy that a lot of people are excited about. Uh they have multiple good running backs. I think this offense is just going to move. Um and I think uh there were some concerns. I mean if, if you watched him, I'm not I'm not a film guy, but I saw some Falcons games last year. Ryan's arm is not as good as it used to be. I mean he definitely threw some ducks last year. But I don't think it's gonna matter. I think their receivers are so good. They're they've improved their offensive line, which is just going to be good for Ryan. I I think I think a top five season for him is almost a lock. Um and his ADP, you know, isn't drastically below that, but um let's see he's uh you know on some sites he's he's as high as quarterback six or um you know he can go as low as eight or or but he's in that same range sort of a group with quarterbacks that i think have a lot more risk than him and you know at best equal upside probably worse he's he's like he's in the wrong tier i think and um I think think that offense as a whole, I'm buying all of them. And uh, Ryan is the safest bet of it all because he benefits from the the quality of the players around him more than anyone else does. That
3: is a very fair argument, and Ryan, I think, is a great player to get behind. And it's uh, insights like that, which is why we had Mike on and why we're just really, really pumped that he's part of the Rotovis team. Uh so thanks for coming on, Mike. Um, we really appreciate it. Hopefully we can get you back at some point.
4: Yeah, that would be great. Uh this, this was great. I'm really happy to to be a part of the show and uh be a part of the Rotoviz team.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Mike. Uh for everybody out there, quick reminder again about that listeners only 10% discount to a Rotoviz NFL pass through the podcast homepage, com forward slash podcast. You will get access to all of Mike's content. Uh, or all of those tools, all of our NFL content. Um, make sure that you also check out uh, the Patreon, RotoViz Radio Patreon, and consider helping to support the shows and getting access to uh, our fantastic team and a number of the writers that will be in there answering all of the questions that you have. But that's going to do it for today's show. Again, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at DaveCabinFF And Mike, where can people follow you?
4: I am at BeersWater, B-E-E-R-S, water on Twitter. Uh, That's the best way to uh, keep up on what I've been up to.
3: Nice. I'm going to expect that a high majority of our audience is already following you, but if uh, anybody out there is not, definitely go follow Mike. And until next time, remember, it's not a
1: fantasy if you believe it.